Dr. June Venser is my friend. We met in 2001. In fact, I, I knew Dr. June Venser before I knew any of the other Castillo family. And um, uh, I just want to say that over the years, he's become uh, a very, very special friend. In fact, during the, uh, during the intermission between the last service and this service, Gloria, I've got to tell you this, that Dr. June Venser and I decided that we're going to Cambodia. <laughs> she says, have fun. <laughs> 29 years of marriage, yeah. <laughs> Dr. June Venture is going to bring his wife, too, so there'll be the four of us. We'll, we'll have fun. Uh, listen, Dr. June Venture has got a heart for, for souls, has a heart for advancing the kingdom of God. Uh, he is the, the president of Global Transformation Ministries, a member body of the Global Dawn Network. He also served as the chairman of the Board of Trustees of the Alliance Graduate School in the Philippines. He's the first third world leader to have been appointed as International Director of World Evangelical Alliance. And he's also the founding chairman of the Evangelical Fellowship of Asia. There's more. He serves as a general secretary of the Philippine Council of Evangelical Churches and of the Philippine Relief and Development Services. He is pastor emeritus of the Alliance Fellowship Church. He is an ordained minister and a bishop of the Christian and Missionary Alliance Churches of the Philippines. And presently, Dr. June Venser is serving as the transition pastor of the Pearl Land Alliance International Church, where he is suffering for Jesus in Texas. You want to go to Texas, dear? <laughs> Dr. Venser is married to Annabella Castillo, and they have four children, three of whom are married and five grandchildren. Folks, would you join me in welcoming Dr. June Venser to our church? You know that a pastor is your friend when he introduces you in, with such generosity. And after hearing the introduction, I'd like to sit down and listen to myself. <laughs> I enjoy Pentecostal churches, really. My attitude has changed through the years. They are very creative people. One time I was preaching at a church in Bangkok. And the pastor was very conscious about time. And so what happened was the development of a culture where they saved time throughout the service. So I observed that when people got inside the church, they got some placards on the side. And I didn't know what it was. I thought there would be a riot protesting against a guest preacher. Then I found out that whenever they liked what I said, they would raise the placard. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise the Lord, you know. So they shape time really. Instead of clapping and shouting, they just raise the placard. Then you are encouraged to continue on preaching. I like that. Pastor Alan and myself have co-officiated a couple of weddings already. And I know that in counseling, you normally tell the couple that when you fight, and no couple has not fought some battles, including that of pastors and his wife, right? You do quarrel once in a while. And always you quote the verse which says that do not go to sleep until you settle your differences. And one 
couple came up to the pastor one day and said, you know, we believe what the Bible said. As a matter of fact, we have not slept for five nights already. <laughs> I think it should not be that long. I always uh, advise uh, couples themselves to ensure that their marriage should be a very harmonious one by observing one principle, biblical principle. Wives, submit to your husbands. You don't agree. (laughs) And uh, husbands, obey your wives. Uh, If you follow this, you'll be a happy couple. There's no doubt about that. I thought, Pastor Allen, that when a pastor makes an appeal for the offering, you're quite desperate. But you know, my friends, I've learned one thing. Your giving must be proportionate to God's blessings, or God's blessings will be proportionate to your giving. Which one would you like? I think you should prefer the first one. Your giving must be proportionate to God's blessings. Let us pray. Father, speak to us, for we, your servants, are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. The key problem of our times today is one of authority. Whether in government, or in the church, or in the family, or in business organizations. The Bible speaks about authority in the sense that it is God-ordained. God operates through the structures of authority in history. After all, the earth is the theater of God's glory. In terms of authority, God said, citizens, submit to your governors. Members of the church, submit to the leaders of your church. Within the family, children, wives, submit to the authority of the head of the family. In the business circles, employees submit to the employers. So basically, God is a God of order and not of confusion. Within this concept of authority, God creates an environment whereby he can carry out his redemptive agenda. Because when there is submission to authority, there is order in society as well. Without authority, there is chaos and anarchy. Where there is chaos and anarchy, then there is threat to life. And sometimes you're wondering why God allows evil people to live longer than the saints, and we ask questions like that. And the reason for that is, structures of authority are among those that God uses to preserve human life, because human life is the presupposition for the preaching of the gospel. Without living people, to whom would you preach the gospel to? And that is why order in society is a necessary ingredient in order that lives will be preserved so that we can present to them the gospel claim of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Philippines, and I think that's true in other countries of the world, one politician was preaching or speaking in a cemetery. And his wife approached him and said, are you crazy? Why are you giving your political speech in a cemetery? They're already dead. And the husband said, ah, you forgot. Last year the dead voted. <laughs> now, how many of pastors will preach in a cemetery? Once dead, you're dead. And so authority is a divinely ordained institution in order to preserve life so that you and I can present the gospel to those who are still alive. 
But the concept of authority in that sense is also important because in the Western Hemisphere, but not only in the Western Hemisphere, but in other cities of the world already, absolutes are already denied. The external understanding of our universe had been undermined already by science. And the internal world of man and woman is undermined by psychology already. You can see the shift from theonomy, or a theonomous concept, God and law, to one of autonomy, man and law. When we deny theonomy, God and his laws, then auto man becomes God himself. In other words, man becomes his own authority. When man becomes authority, then the question of authority comes in. What is the basis of our authority? The first of that would be our human reason. Without any doubt, reason is very important. Part of the image of God imparted to us in creation is rationality. God said, love God with all of your heart, with all of your mind. And in that sense, we can communicate. We can reason out. Logic is still operational. We can talk about A is B, B is B is C, therefore A must be C. That logical sequence is still there. However, the reasoning of man is based on the fallen nature of man as well. And so our reasons are not perfect anymore. They are corrupted and therefore subject to fallibility. What happens if my reasoning is different from yours? So we need someone to decide who is right. But what happens if the third one is also indifference to us. So eventually, this chain of human reasoning contradicting each other will negate any final authority altogether. And so in that sense, we have no security in terms of whether the decision is right or wrong. But the second one is experience. Without any doubt, experience is very important because your testimony is the best message you can ever have. Because then you become what you say, what you are preaching. If the message is consistent with the medium himself, then the message is very powerful. The only problem with experience is that our experiences are not uniform. Our experiences are different from one another. No human being has experienced all the experiences in the world so that he can say that my experience is normative for everybody. And therefore, experience is not adequate as basis for authority. Or you can talk about your conscience. Oftentimes we say, my conscience tells me. My conscience doesn't bother me. And so conscience becomes your authority. But it's the same reasoning that is only cyclical in reason and experience because you are also a human being that is fallible. And therefore your conscience is not perfect. And therefore your conscience can differ from that of the other as well. So again, you're back to square one. You have no authority that is common for everybody. So the fourth possibility is that of revelation. In other words, revelation comes from God and then to man. It's not the product of human consensus in terms of the best minds in the world across time, but that it's God himself that we recognize he exists, and therefore he revealed to us his will as recorded in scripture. So as far as I'm concerned, this is authority, the word of God. It is inspired by the spirit of God. Yeah. If it's inspired, therefore it is without error. If it is without error, therefore it cannot be proven to be false. It is infallible. If that is so, then it must be plenary. Every verse of this text is equally true. So if we have to talk about authority, then this is authority. If we don't affirm this as authority, then everything else will collapse. Because without authority, then the logical end of that is relativism. There is no more truth whatsoever. 
If there is no more truth, then you affirm that there is no more God as well. If there is no God, everything else is permissible. And that's the problem of our society today. You look, you listen to news media. Are they really honoring our leaders? Some of those comedians are really comedians, you know. They earn money by lambasting their government and their leaders altogether. There's no respect whatsoever. And take a look at even in the homes. Many times the heads of the family are no longer respected. Take a look at the church. I, I listen to ideas more than I see places. When I go to places, I tend to remember ideas that I have learned. And that's why I always enjoy Pastor Alan, because during the brief time we can be together over a cup of coffee, we exchange ideas. And these things are really very important to me because they shape ideas. And, and nothing happens in the world without ideas. Whatever you see around you was initiated by a dream, initiated by a vision, initiated by an idea. Think of anything you see that was not started by a dream. And that's why I always say dream big things because to dream is free. But my point simply is this. If we don't have authority, relativism becomes the end of that. We negate God altogether and we negate the Bible altogether. Therefore, what we are here for in this church. Whatever you decide will always be subjected to doubt. But if it is God's word, then they take a look at what God is saying to us. And whether we will be confronted by our guilt or by conscience, it's up to you. But basically, let us talk about the word of God. John chapter 1, 1 to 18. Verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All right. The first verse alone is loaded, isn't it? In the beginning was the word. It speaks about the eternality of the word of God. In the beginning, the pre-existence of the world. Nothing existed before anything else. But the word of God was already in the beginning. He pre-existed everything else in creation. All right, so he is, he has eternality. And the word was with God. You notice the preposition with, with God. It speaks about relationship. And when you are related to someone else, it speaks about personality at the same time. And God is a person. God has personality. And that's the only reason why we can talk about in a meaningful sense that God wants to relate with us. Because he's a person. He understands us. He created us. Therefore, he wants to relate with us. And then the other one is that, and the word was God. If you take a look at the linking verb, was, it speaks about identity. And his identity was, the word is God. Now, there are problems in some translations, especially, for example, others would deny that there was no definite article in verse 1. In other words, the concept of the word is not there. No definite article before the word. And so other translations were at the indefinite article A. And the word was a God, which means that Jesus Christ is not the only God, but there are other gods as well. But that can be negated by the context of all the other scriptural verses in John itself. Because, for example, Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man can go to the Father but by me. Again, the definite article, the, exists in each one of them. In fact, we are told that in the Greek text itself, it says, and when Matthew, in Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say people say that I am? 
And they said, well, you know, they say you are Jeremiah, you are one of the prophets, and so on and so forth. That is a very safe statement, isn't it? Because then it's just like saying, who do you say Jesus Christ is? And you say, well, Billy Graham said he is God. Well, you are safe. You have no commitment. You are just simply saying, this is what the others say. So if you, the next question, therefore, was Jesus Christ in a very, very positive way. Said, but who do you say that I am? Now you are faced with the inescapable question of life. Now you cannot quote someone else. Now what Jesus Christ is asking, what about you? Who do you believe that I am? And so Peter, Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Until you ask the question, who do I think Jesus Christ is? Who do I say Jesus Christ is? You have not confronted the question of life or salvation in that sense yet. And Peter was confronted with that personal question. Who do you say? Not someone else. And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In the Greek one, it says, you are the Christ, the son, the God, the living one. Again, all the different articles are there. And in other words, the word is God. That is why the other translation would simply say, and the only begotten son of God, the only God begotten of God himself. God is the word and the word is God. Other translation would say, and God, and the word is God, reversing the order itself. So what we are saying simply is that the word is God. Can you imagine that? I have to repeat what you already know. But it's okay. It's good to review what we already know, right? We reinforce ourselves. But the other thing about that is, let's take a look at one slide out there. As the basis of the sermon itself, we can follow that. In the book of Luke, the emphasis was the humanity of Jesus. In the book of John, the emphasis was on the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And... Uh, the prologue itself, up to verse 18, combines both concepts, humanity and deity. You see, in these two concepts of, can you put the slide, please? Why is it that John is putting so much emphasis on the deity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus Christ? And uh, I think you can imagine that you are looking at a coin with two sides. The first side of the coin is simply this. The transcendence of the deity. Nothing is above the transcendence of God. And below that is the purity of the humanity of Jesus. All right, so you have both concepts. The transcendence of God and the purity of Jesus Christ. On the other side of that, you find that you are talking about the death of humanity. But on the other side, you have the resurrection of deity itself. Now, let's take a look at this concept. Who is Jesus Christ? And the understanding of John is that he is God, he is man, he is creator, he is life, he is light, he is grace, he is truth, and he is Lord. All that are adjectives of who Jesus Christ really is. So you see, he is God and man. Now the question is, why is it so important to emphasize that Jesus Christ is both God and man? Can anyone be saved if they believe in Jesus simply as man and not God? Others would say he is not really God, he's just a moral teacher. He's a very good man, but he is not God. Can anyone be saved if Jesus Christ was merely God and not man? And the answer to both is no. You have to believe that Jesus Christ is God and Man, indissoluble, indivisible concept, they must be together. All right. 
why is it so important? For the simple reason that you go back into Genesis again, chapter 3, when God said, do not eat of this fruit. And when you eat, you will surely die. All right? Two and then three. Now, the wages of sin is death. All have sinned and the wages of sin is death. And therefore, for sin to be free, to be atoned for, someone has to die for it. Because nobody would die, commit suicide just to be saved. In other words, someone has to die for our sins. In the Old Testament, the animal sacrifice was instituted in order that it will cover the sins of God's people and they can come before his presence again. But the animal sacrifices were temporary. They could, they could only cover the sin, but they could not remove the sin. All those animal sacrifices were pointing to the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And they were looking at Jesus Christ as the final sacrifice. As a final sacrifice, that sacrifice must be pure. And the Lord Jesus Christ insistently was pictured out as pure without sin. Tempted in all areas, but they never sinned. All right. So he was the perfect sacrifice himself. All right. But on the other hand, if he was simply man as a perfect sacrifice, when he dies, what happens? To begin with, for Jesus Christ to atone for your sins and my sins, he must be the lamb that must die. And this is the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. He is both shepherd and lamb at the same time. He is both the high priest and the sacrifice at the same time. And so Jesus Christ had to die for us. That's why he must be man in order that our sins will be atoned for. Or otherwise the wages of sin cannot be paid. So he must be man in order to die so that he can pay for the penalty of sins. All right. On the other hand, if he simply dies, then it leaves no hope. And the value of his sacrifice will be limited. So he must be God in order that... He will rise again from the dead. That's one thing about it. Because the reason we die is because of sin. But if Jesus Christ is God at the same time, then the grave cannot be holding him. He will rise again from the dead. The other part about the fact of the death of Jesus Christ is that the value of his sacrifice is so much more that he can die for everyone. That's why the Bible speaks about he died once and for all. So the value of the sacrifice is so immense that it provides adequately for the penalty of your sins and my sin. That's why he must be both God and man. That's why the prologue is insistent that he must be God and man. So when you take a look at that concept, why is it so important that we believe him as God and man? Because Jesus Christ warned us that in the last days people will come before him and say, I have prophesied in your name, I have cast out demons in your name, I had performed wonders in your name, but depart from me, I never knew you. Oxford scholar, she is Lewis Christian apologist, once said that that one verse is the most tragic judgment that he ever heard. For the simple reason that you are banished from the presence of the God who is everywhere. So where will you be? If God is everywhere and you are banished from his presence, where will you be? If God knows everything and you are deleted from his memory, where will you be? And that's why it's so important that we understand our salvation. It's not a mechanical concept of just repeating a sinner's prayer. I receive Jesus Christ as Savior. The question is the content of the Christ that you receive as Savior and Lord. If you did not receive him as Savior, who is God and man, then who did you receive? During the times of Jesus Christ, there were so many people who were called Jesus. But the Jesus of the Bible is God and man. And that must be clear in our understanding of our salvation. Or otherwise, 
we are not sure about who did we receive indeed. And so you will find a God and man. But God and man, Jesus. So that raises the question of the Trinity, doesn't it? Because you have God the Father and God the Son. And all of a sudden you're asking the question, well, what about the Trinity? To be very frank about it, the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. But biblical teaching affirms to the reality of the Trinity itself. Right? But why is it so important that we affirm that as well? Because sociology is grounded on the Trinity. Why do we relate with each other? Why do we want community? Because of the fellowship that is already within the Trinity itself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is said about that is the concept of love cannot be understood. Outside of the love of God within the Trinity itself. But the other side about the salvation itself can hardly be understood in the evangelical sense. Because God, though co-equal in their substance and essence, have decided in what they call economic Trinity to subordinate each other for the purpose of redemption itself. So for example, God the Father sent the Son, the Son sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin and then glorifies Jesus and we have faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ atones for our sin and the Father forgives us and welcomes us into heaven itself. So the Trinity is involved in that and that is why it's the beauty of it. So all of that are part of who Jesus Christ really is. Now, the concept of believe, repent, receive. If we know that the Bible is the word of God, that it is the revelation of his will, then we know that all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. The question about repentance, there can be no forgiveness without repentance. The question of repentance is, it is predicated on your admission that you have sinned against God, right? And sin against God is transgression of the law. In the Western Hemisphere, that's easy to understand because we are a litigation society. Everywhere else is law, all right? When I first came to America and I drove a car, I could not understand for the light of me this concept of the four-way stop. Nobody is there, so why will I stop? (laughs) In my country, it's fun. I mean... We, we believe in what we call presence authority, not mediated authority. In the Northern Hemisphere, you talk about mediated authority. Every line on the road is authority. Every sign is authority. In my country, you must have a policeman, the presence of authority, in order to believe them. Right? <laughs> so, you, you will find traffic lights out there as well. No doubt about that. You know, we are civilized as well. So, we have green, orange, red. But... Many times we are colorblind. Uh, if there's no policeman in there, you know, green go, orange, drive faster, red, go anyway. You know what I mean? That type of thing. So, when you talk about guilt, sin, you are aware of the law, the Ten Commandments, and so on and so forth. Okay, so law and guilt are very important. You see, this is the whole issue. If you deny authority, if we deny there is God, then there is no law. If there is no law, there is no guilt. If there is no guilt, there is no conscience. There is no conscience, there is no shame. And we can do whatever we want in society. That's what's happening actually in, in our societies around the world. And so all of a sudden you find a guilt. But what about the countries of Asia? Our concept is not necessarily guilt, really directly because we know the law. But our concept of guilt is based on shame. 
We have done wrong, therefore we are ashamed about it. And when we are ashamed about it, we know we have violated some traditions, some laws out there. And eventually it circles around into the laws of God. What about in Africa and other places where the concept is fear? Well, they know that they are afraid. There's a country of gods. Which god is the most powerful of all? And so the god who is most powerful of all is the one that we should follow. But ultimately, the concept of guilt and repentance must be there. Without repentance, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Because what will I repent about? It's almost like a wife who told her husband, I will admit I am wrong. All right? If you say I'm right. And that's what said, you are right. <laughs> so, I mean, the point simply is, that's secular. You know, it's almost an oxymoron concept that you will repent of something that you are not aware you have committed sin about. Because sin is a debt, right? When you wrong me, you owe me. I have two options when you wrong me. One, I will exact payment from what you owe me. I'll collect. And if it is husband and wife relationship, I'll punish you, I'll be cold to you, I'll not be close to you, I'll not go to bed with you. All right, so I punish, I exact payment. All the others say about that is I will make the payment myself by condoning what you owe me. That's precisely what happened in atonement itself. We could not pay what we owe God. And so God made the payment for us by sending his son Jesus Christ so that he could pay and take care of our sins. That is the language of Colossians chapter 2 verse 14. The Bible said that we, God penned our sins on a piece of paper on the cross at Calvary. And some scholars would say that it was a commercial image of salvation because every one of those papers contains our debt. And when we receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, then what happens is that God took our promissory note and said stop paid, 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 paid and it's fully paid. Now we are fully paid we are now in right standing with God. So you see salvation itself is not simply a recitation of prayer. It is important we don't deny that but the content of that prayer is what's important. Number one it must be based on who Jesus Christ is. God and man. He was our lamb. He was our sacrifice. And the second part about that is it's grounded on repentance. Repentance that we have sinned against God. And therefore repentance comes in two ways. Number one, we stop sinning. But it's not enough that we stop sinning. That's not biblical concept. You don't have to be a Christian to stop sinning. The biblical concept of sinning is you turn around and serve God. And so if you are people who have repented against God, you should be in church not simply to listen and to be entertained, but rather you are here to be discipled in order that you can serve God through the fellowship of the church. In 1974, the Lausanne Covenant was given to us, and part of the definition of evangelization is this. Evangelization is the process of communicating the gospel to every man and woman, so that they will be given a valid opportunity to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and to serve him in the fellowship of his church. I tell you one thing, nobody can grow the way God wanted him to grow in the fullness of his salvation blessing, apart from the church. Nobody is saved apart, but as part of the church. And that's what's important about that. You receive him as Savior and Lord, and you repent because you recognize you have sinned against the word of God. But when you receive him, the concept of receiving, believing is this. Faith is not believing something that is not true. 
Faith is grounded on the sufficiency of evidence, all right? You don't know everything else, or otherwise you decide. But the other side about faith is that there is a basis for believing, right? When you marry each other, the covenant is faithful the rest of your life. You don't, be, you don't see that at the end. You simply have faith that the other person will keep his covenant with you. Faith is grounded on the sufficiency. That's why you have to have courtship. In order to know each other a little bit better. And then you can trust each other. But the concept of receiving is not only believing what is true. But also to accept the authority of the one you believe. In other words, when I receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, I do not accept him only as my Savior. I accept him as my sole sovereign authority over my life. That whatever he says, I do. Or otherwise, we are confronted by the question of the Lord Jesus Christ who said, You call me Lord and yet you do not obey what I say. So the whole issue of salvation is receiving an authority that we can entrust ourselves to and obey that authority because we know one thing, that when we obey the word of God, then we are given more freedom and more happiness. It's the reverse of what society tells us, that if you become a Christian, you will be bound. You will not enjoy life. That is the devil's lie. The moment you become a Christian, you obey the word of God, God gives you freedom to enjoy True happiness in life. For materialism can never fulfill. And the only way we can fulfill the highest pursuit of our lives is to give ourselves to Jesus Christ. Perhaps that is why in the Gospel of Mark, the teaching on the Gospel is predicated on the kingdom of God is near. All right? The kingdom of God comes to us in terms of two spheres. The first coming of Jesus Christ was the kingdom of God in terms of the rule, the reign of God in your life and my life. And the second time it will be the reign, the the, the sphere of the location itself. So the reign and the realm. One day when he comes again, we will be in heaven. Are you heaven bound? You want to go there now? Really? I'll tell you one thing. I'll be honest. I'm heaven bound. But I, want, I don't want to go there yet. I want to enjoy my grandchildren and continue preaching the gospel. But the point simply is this. Authority. Have you accepted Jesus as authority? Are you prepared to surrender your will, to submit your will to Jesus Christ? And there are times when what he tells us to do is humanly impossible. But that's where the new covenant comes in, isn't it? The new covenant instituted at the Lord's Supper was simply telling that, I will put flesh in your heart, I will put the law in you, and I'll send you the Spirit of God as well. In other words, the hardness of our heart, the heart, the heart of stone will be changed. The moment you receive Jesus Christ, that stony heart becomes soft. To yield, to listen, to obey the words of God. And the answer about that is, the word is there. It will continue to play a vital role in us because we are Christian. And then the Spirit of God will ensure that we can live by the power of God. Because Jesus Christ said, without me you can do nothing. And so it is possible that we do that. And so when we receive him, receive him as Savior, but receive him among others as the final authority the final arbiter of your decision making in your life. Because if you don't, then what is your salvation? What is discipleship? 
Let me close. I am the way, the truth. And truth is singular. There can be no two truths. Only one. And only in Jesus Christ can you find that. And that is what is important for us to remember. That Jesus Christ is the one that we will appreciate. My brothers and sisters. Life is priority. We make decisions every day. But what are our priorities in life? All right? I believe that one day when we stand before the judgment seat of God, God will look at only two things. Our calendar and our checkbook. You agree? Now, the concept of calendar was given to us by theologian Lewis Smith when he said, life is a box. And the calendar has 30, 28, 30, 31 boxes. Every day you write on that calendar box, what did you do? Your schedule, your activities, the events. And one day God will review the boxes of the calendars of your life. And he will begin to say, aha, so how many hours did you give to me? Okay, this and that, this and that. It becomes a journal for you, an evidence that you cannot controvert simply because you were the one who wrote on those boxes yourself. The question, therefore, is, are the boxes of your life filled with the glory of God, filled with obedience to the word of God, or is it a box that is filled with yourself and myself and filled with a rebellion against the will of God? For in the end, we go to sleep, We wake up in a mystical way and we find ourselves in the final box of our life and that is our coffin. Will the coffin be a doorway to a new existence? Will it be a highway of gold towards heaven or will it be a pathway into hell? The problem with hell is it is a place known too late. You see, not only is priority important, but it's a choice. Every day you make choices, don't you? Every day you make choices. And some of those choices are chosen for you already. Right? Like what will you eat? Husband, the wife had predetermined that already. If you are not a Calvinist, you better believe it. <laughs> my, my, my point simply is this. Choice. You make a choice. I believe Sinners will go to hell, not because they are sinners, but because they rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. It's a choice they have to make. Let me put that in a positive term. Sinners will go to hell, not because they are sinners, but because they did not receive Jesus as their Savior and authority in their life. You don't have to make a choice for Jesus. You cannot be neutral about it. If you don't choose Jesus Christ, that has been chosen for you by Adam and Eve already. The only choice we have is to receive, not to act, not to receive. It's already a choice for hell. As I said, it was pre-chosen already for us by Adam and Eve. You make a choice. 
You have a freedom to choose. God said, the day you eat, you die. Adam and Eve had the freedom to make a choice, not to eat. But the moment they ate, they have no choice as to the consequence of their choice. The moment you don't receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, you cannot change the consequence of that already. That is predetermined by God already. And that is irreversible in that sense. So make that choice right today, because if you don't, then that has been chosen for you already. My brothers and sisters, is Jesus Christ authority of your life? That's the most important thing. You know, your theme is evangelism. Do you realize that God is not neutral about you, whether we make a choice to evangelize or not? God did not give us the choice. He has already given you the joy of salvation, and have given you the accountability, the responsibility of your choice. We are not given the freedom to make a choice whether we will serve him or not. Not to serve him presupposes a question prior to that, and that is, did you really have him as Savior and Lord? Or have you backslidden as a Christian? Serious question, aren't they? But you don't have the choice. If you don't believe me, go to the book of Ezekiel chapter 3, when God said, warn them about their sin. If they will not listen to you, their blood is not in your hand. But if you know they are sinful and you did not warn them, then their blood is on your hand. You look at your friends and relatives around you today, have you warned them about the impending judgment that can await those who do not have Jesus Christ? You are not neutral when you stand before the presence of God one day. When you stand before him, the question is, are you washed with the blood of your family and of your friends? Evangelism is a lifestyle. Evangelism is a necessary consequence to your salvation. Evangelism is a necessary consequence of the authority of Jesus Christ in your life. My question, therefore, my brothers and sisters, is are you washed with the blood of the Lord, of men around you? Have you received Jesus not only as Savior, but also as authority? You are now the children of God. Born again of the Spirit of God. Praise God for that. Amen. I pray that one day, when you stand before him, it will all be hallelujah, praise the Lord. Welcome, my faithful servant. God bless you. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? Father, we want to say thank you again for our brother. Thank you, Father, for the message that you've laid on his heart. It's a perfect message to end this summer series on Cross Church Goes Fishing. God, we pray that every one of us would understand the gravity of this call, of this command to go and make disciples, to go and share our faith. So, God, we ask for the grace, for the wisdom, for the strength, for the opportunity to tell our friends and our family, all the people that we know, even strangers, about the love of Jesus Christ. And those of us who put our faith in Christ, we understand that to be a Christian means that we obey Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, 
you will obey my commands. And so, Father, fill us today with a holy, holy fear that drives us, O God, to obey you and to do your will, knowing, Father, that it's only then, when we're truly obeying you, that we experience that abundant life that Jesus promises. And we pray that for Christ's sake. And everyone said it with me. Tell the